This week on New Mexico in Focus, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham on the COVID crisis. I think New Mexico's really primed for a much more cohesive effort that protects all of us in the same way together. Plus, covering COVID-19 in the oil patch, why southeastern New Mexico wants to chart its own course. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. This week's show is all about COVID-19 response in New Mexico. The week started with the governor notching a notable court victory as the Supreme Court affirmed her power to issue sizable fines to enforce public health orders. That's where we will begin as senior producer Matt Grubbs caught up with the governor for an extended interview over Zoom. Ms. Luhan Grisham has spent the last five months trying to balance life and livelihood as she deals with the pandemic. Hear now her thoughts on how it has gone so far and her plan for moving New Mexico forward, especially as schools get ready to start up a new year of classes. Before we get to our big interview this week with Michelle Lujan Grisham, Governor of New Mexico, I want to welcome you in to the New Mexico in Focus podcast for Friday, April, or August 7th, 2020. Can't keep the days, can't keep the months straight. Sorry about that. I'm sure you're feeling some of that as well. It is a, a crucial time of year here as we look at and consider COVID-19. Schools in the state getting ready to start next week. We know that will be virtually, at least for a few weeks. Got an update from the governor this week, and the numbers are looking better. But the question will be, are they going to be good enough to go to a hybrid model of some virtual, some in-person classes after Labor Day weekend? We were very fortunate this week, though, to sit down with Governor Michelle Luan Grisham and to talk about her uh, approach and her style to heading off this uh, unprecedented pandemic experience here in New Mexico that's now driving into its fifth and sixth months. Uh, not an easy task for anybody. She's faced a ton of criticism. The Republican Party in the state especially is ready to pounce on anything she says, but we wanted to really find out what she's learned through this process, why she makes the decisions she makes, how she makes those decisions. And uh, we're going to hear from her, but also get a lot of reaction from line folks, uh, line panelists this week. And we want to hear from you as well about what you think about the state's response. We've obviously fared better than a lot of other states. The question is, at what cost? Uh, the governor has said repeatedly that she's going to decide on the side of science and on the side of health and saving lives. Uh, critics will say that it has been too much and has been the death knell for a lot of businesses in New Mexico. There's no doubt that there are businesses that have suffered, that there are businesses that have already gone out of business, will not be coming back. It's a difficult balance to try to achieve. And we want to hear what you think about it, what your experiences are. So hit us up on Facebook. Just search for New Mexico and Focus. Or if you haven't already, sign up for our Focus on New Mexico Facebook group. And uh, leave some of your thoughts under the video this week of our interview with the governor. You can also do that on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, or you can shoot us a line at New Mexico and focus at nmpbs.org. We really do want to hear from you on that. You can also leave us a video or a voice message, I should say, audio message 
here on the podcast. So we encourage you to do that as well. We really do want to hear about your experiences. Maybe we'll bring you into a future discussion. Uh, So please do that. But for now, here is senior producer Matt Grubbs and his interview with Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Governor, just this week, you won a a big decision in the Supreme Court. They upheld your ability to levy some serious fines for violators of the public health order. Your statement was that the state shouldn't have to fine anybody to doing the right thing in a crisis, shouldn't be something we have to argue about, but anyone endangering the lives of New Mexicans will face the consequences. My thanks to everyone doing their part every day. So, so far, your lawyer says only about 16 businesses have faced those steep fines. And it strikes me that you have a bit of an enforcement problem. And increasingly, the response from the people who disagree with you is kind of, so what? How do you address that? Well, that's a, uh, I think we are addressing it, right, by doing as much as we can, responding to every single complaint. And uh, whether you're in a, a small restaurant in a rural community or a big restaurant in an urban community or another business, you know, we've had retailers and others. Uh, we work really hard. We give you a cease and desist. It's the same format. We try hard, actually, not to get to civil penalties because we're in an economic um, crisis as well as a public health crisis. And we don't want to be in that position. But I think here's the, the real dilemma, which is I don't still quite grasp how this country turned a public health issue, a pandemic public health emergency into a political issue. And that defying a public health order is a political statement against a governor or a legislative body or a mayor or a county commission. I mean, look at the the infighting on those decisions going on all across the country between mayors and other elected leaders and governors. And I, I think that has a lot more to do with failed leadership at the federal level and politicizing this public health emergency. And so the answer is we need consistent, scientifically based public health uh, efforts at the national level, because then I think that people don't buy into it's a fairness issue. Uh, A governor somewhere, even me included, are being unfair to one industry or another or one community or another. COVID is unfair, period. You know, restaurants, as an example, they didn't create high-risk issues. They didn't bring COVID to their restaurants. People brought it and infected largely uh, workers and others. And um, the quicker that we get better public health practices and less political infighting about decisions, the sooner we can return to a a more normalized environment. Um, And so there's not an easy effort here, right? There's not an easy statement or or a set of solutions because you don't have a good federal response. So people politicized it. That never happened to me as the health secretary before. We made tough decisions about flu, about plague, about hantavirus, and people just followed that because it was evidence-based. They didn't think about that it was political, even though I worked for an elected person, a governor, right, of a political party who was elected, and now that's not the case. So um, I'm disappointed by that for the country, but we're going to keep making the best decisions for New Mexicans. 
You know, you look at situations like Lee County, where you have the sheriff down there who's not only refusing to enforce the mask mandate, um, but, but posed at restaurants that are supposed to be closed and theoretically had their licenses to serve food suspended, dining inside with a big group of deputies. I'm trying to think of other ways in which he could sort of insult you and tell you that he's not going to do the the things that you're asking him to do. How do you take that? And, and maybe more importantly, how do you convince new Mexicans to do what you're asking? Well, um, Matt, I think the, the vast majority of New Mexicans are doing what we're asking them to do. I mean, our, our numbers, we keep flattening the curve. We uh, as see our case count go down. I think by and large, New Mexicans have sacrificed and are doing their part. We do have some areas, and you've mentioned a, a, a tough one. And again, Lee County seeing a surge. They're seeing more positive cases. Uh, you can see that the more things that are open, the worse the behavior, public health behavior is, more cases you have. I mean, it's all scientifically based. And what I say to New Mexicans is, uh, again, you can't have law enforcement now has been politicized. I've never, again, I don't understand how this country moved in that direction, right? We've got this sort of a constitutional sheriff's environment all across the country. We've seen more militias attack elected leaders and governors of both parties. This is not a Democratic governor or Republican governor. It's happening in every state. And law enforcement, local uh, elected law enforcement folks are saying, we don't have to follow a governor's orders. Yes, you do. You, we, that is what chaos is. You take a sworn oath. That's like having doctors say, you know, we think uh, I agree with President Trump. COVID is a hoax. So if you say you've got COVID, I'm not going to treat you. you know, that is not how we can do things. And it pains me that, you know, we're going to work to hold those sheriffs accountable in Lee County. Uh, we made it really clear that a mayor cannot tell businesses that they can defy the order. That poor business now has a significant financial liability. The county could potentially in city have uh, financial liabilities because you've got employees uh, who were required to come to work in practices that were unsafe. Uh, I, I hope that we can get beyond politicizing an elected leader's decision-making. And I guess sheriffs might say, we're, we're elected too, but you're elected to follow whatever the laws are and to hold your constituents accountable when they don't do that. And I'm gonna remind the Mexicans of this with all due respect to everyone who finds themselves in untenable situations where their friends and neighbors own these restaurants, where restaurants have often been, right? The, 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 the cornerstones to making sure that law enforcement, right, that their, that their uh, 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 community campaigns get support and resources, uh, that they are clear about providing respect because when we lose a family member, an officer, they're the first to come to the family's aides and to help pay for funerals. I mean, it's been a really productive, kind, respectful relationship. So I can see how that could be really painful for a sheriff or a deputy sheriff. But when I, I was uh, the Secretary of Health, I remember frankly debating with local law enforcement about booster seats and car seats and requirements and, and uh, citations for texting. They're all public health issues. Do you remember, Matt, the fight about helmets for cyclists and kids and skateboarders? And we had law enforcement say, well, we won't enforce it. Well, they do enforce it now. <laughs> So I, I, I think we need to get beyond this. It is not a power struggle. 
Nobody wants to tell any other independent adult what to do. But if we can create public health decisions and public health systems that keep us all safe, whether it's a helmet for kids riding bicycles or whether it's about making sure that businesses are not prematurely open during COVID, uh, it's good work. And it, and frankly, we've now got research that shows that it doesn't make your economy any weaker than the states that fully opened and then had to fully close. And um, maybe people who watch this interview will keep a much more open mind that these are evidence-based public health decisions. They're not intended to, to be rural versus urban, sheriff versus police, police versus state police. Um, that's not how we make these decisions. They're based on keeping the Mexicans safe and I need everyone to do their part. I wanna go back to late April, early May. Um, May 1st, the New York Times runs a headline that says how New Mexico is beating the virus. Um, those were the, the salad days, so to speak, if, if those can be there. Um, did the state and, and perhaps you as the governor get a little overconfident um, when we began to open up thinking that um, we could, that we had this thing beat and then along comes Memorial Day and along comes June and July and things get pretty ugly? Um, I, I don't think we were overconfident. I'm not, uh, I agree with you that uh, I was hoping for uh, better outcomes uh, and holding those lower numbers longer. But you might recall, you know, we made really tough decisions about Memorial Weekend, right? I wouldn't open up the major uh, parks and lakes and people were really disappointed because that's a very important celebratory holiday and people were staying away from, you know, families. And I still had, uh, we as a state still had many businesses with restrictions or were completely closed before Memorial Day. You might remember that I uh, was very strict uh, and amended on the eve before Easter, the public health order, because I could see that not enough personal behaviors were in line with what was safe for New Mexico. So I said no church service. Uh, and that was uh, very aggressive. I'm going to say it was probably the most aggressive Easter Eve public health order in the country. And then as we can were we, opening up- I just they, wanted to jump in there. Can, can we- talk about that a little bit more because that's been one of the big criticisms um, from folks who've disagreed with you um, and maybe not even what what you've decided to do. It's the way that you've communicated it. Um, Easter, as you mentioned, was sort of last minute. Just recently, we talk about like group exercise places. Um, those are folks who say, wait, wait a second, we can open. Is there um, an improvement that you can make there in how you're communicating what you expect and what you're going to do? I, I think there is. What, what I'd like to do uh, though, is just to, to be clear that we look at the data every single day. We lay out, like we know we, even in our press conferences, we've laid out, here's how uh, phase, phase one, phase two, phase three, here's who's in it. This is what it looks like. We have each of these groups communicating with cabinet secretaries about their COVID safe practices, how they do it, uh, when we think we might be able to go. And then we say, we'll let you know at the press conference, because I'll have the modeling data from the medical advisory team. So I don't do it uh, without them. 
the good news about that is it's consistent. The bad news is it must feel, it clearly does, to too many of our stakeholders that they just don't know it's coming. And I always think that they do because we lay it out. This is what the gating criteria needs to look like. This is what the positivity rate needs to look like. And here's what the evidence is telling us. The eve before Easter, as an example, you bet. Uh, I wish that one could have been better, but here's really what happened. Most of the faith-based community, to their credit, in New Mexico. So we identified that I, I haven't quite been able to bring along everyone in law enforcement. I'll keep working on that. I think building relationships by far is the better way to go. I will hold folks accountable, but I want to build relationships. I think New Mexico's really prime for a much more cohesive effort that protects all of us in the same way together. And the faith-based community by and large was frankly incredible. They, they led um, um, uh, making sure that they didn't uh, encourage worshipers, that they found ways to do things online in the parking lots. They were amazing. There were a couple of, well, more than a couple, a handful of outliers. And you might remember that in Sierra County, the sheriff deputized all of the churchgoers as deputy sheriffs at one church. And I could just see that a bunch of churches around the state, right when we were trying to make other decisions about reopening, we're gonna defy those orders and create real risk in communities where we can't have risk. And so I made, after I couldn't convince them, I tried to convince them first, then we did the public health order. So I think it's a bit of both. I'm calling people directly. I'm engaging them in any number of groups and meetings. I engage the legislative leadership and other legislators. Uh, is it enough? It can always be more. But I think that's been part of the challenge is we're dependent upon what goes on around us with our neighbors. Uh, it depends on what goes on in any particular community or region. It depends on what's going on in our hospitals and that literally shifts every day. And then I have to look at a trend line. So here's my commitment. Matt, it's a very important point. We need to figure out ways to do it better. And I'm committed to, to finding that balance, I am. The Republican party has, has really gone after you for, is what that they think is, <laughs> for being what they think is imperious um, and, and favoring places like Walmart, Target, Lowe's. Um, you think of the example this spring, of course, when people were supposed to be allowed to go there and they ended up walking out with like plants and, you know, toys from Target, not just groceries, that sort of thing. Um, did that cost you some trust in the way the public views your public health orders? Well, you know, um, uh, I don't want to do... Uh, any of the political work, but look, folks are trying to figure out how do Americans, how do New Mexicans feel about what governors are doing and how they've done it. And I would say that those results from polling and questions and focus groups has shown over and over again that people want you to make the hard decisions and making a hard decision can not feel like it's very fairly applied. It's really a tough situation when big box stores sell everything including groceries uh, and big box stores and Costco sell uh, 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 medical personal over-the-counter right equipment and also do prescriptions and eyeglasses. So you can't go to your optometrist, but you can go to Costco. That's the problem in a pandemic. It is unfair. And the key is, is you can't eliminate people's access to the things that they need to survive but far too many of us have access points to big box stores and arguably in some communities, 
And we saw, and I did restrict actually big box store access in places like McKinley County. And I asked San Juan County to follow suit and the city. So Farmington and Gallup. Uh, I am disappointed that it caused real financial consternation to the smaller grocery stores and businesses, no question. And I don't want a large corporation to be in a situation where it seems easier for them to have more financial security. But by the same token, that's one of the reasons this whole country should look at different economic designs that reinvest in small businesses so that we're stronger in that regard and not so reliant on what people would identify as big box stores. And that'd be something that I think maybe New Mexico could lead the way in figuring out ways to do that, which is part of our economic recovery investment strategies as we uh, ended the special session. So I'm disappointed that that's the end result. Uh, don't think it's a fair uh, attack by the folks who would criticize us and making sure that constituents, no matter where they are, had access to the things that they needed. Uh, and we made them meter. So, uh, and, and big box stores were some of the quickest to come to requiring mask wearing, right? They adopted the best COVID safe practices like Costco. Uh, and so it's not all bad news. But I disagree that that's a fair criticism, but I don't disagree that it feels right. It doesn't feel right that a big box store can sell me a shirt and a bag of groceries and a retailer can't. And I, uh, that's why we wanted the numbers to get as low as possible so we could open those smaller businesses and do more curbside delivery, et cetera. And we did that. I want to, before we go, get to schools. That's something that everyone, including yourself, is watching very closely. Is there a way you think that you can make this more clearly for the folks who are watching and have kids or are teachers about the science, the same way that you've done with gating criteria for the business community and that sort of thing, to say, okay, here's what I need to see. If we don't see that, then it's six more weeks of distance learning or something like that. Well, let's try it this way. And thank you. That I really appreciate this question. So what, what states are beginning uh, to, to, to see, and, and we are too in New Mexico, is that if your positivity rates aren't at five or below, you can expect to see uh, uh, case surges that can have a significant negative impact on your ability to keep folks safe particularly in education. And here's a couple examples. Uh, you know, Georgia, Mississippi went to uh, in-person schools and immediately, right, have positive cases. I think the, uh, the school district uh, in Atlanta is something like after, you know, a couple of cases, 226 personnel in their largest school district that are either positive or came into contact with someone who was positive. So they're quarantined. So, or, or isolated, depending upon that state's uh, stay at home and quarantine um, uh, orders. Well, A, that's unfair to those educators. It's also unfair to the students who are then positive. It's also really risky and unfair to those families. And it happened immediately. Mississippi, Georgia, we're gonna see it happening all around the country. The positivity rates in those communities seem to be very key indicators, which means there's too much of the virus present, people are gonna be asymptomatic and you're gonna have spread. And it is, it's community spread in your community that causes the problem, not schools in and of themselves, but indoor connections, right? Close proximity to other humans and the number, the volume of humans 
creates the opportunity for the virus to move. So you only have three tools, social distancing, mask wearing, not gathering. That's all you have available to you. So here's what we're gonna do in New Mexico. We're gonna to get to that 5% or lower. I'd like to see it at three. I think the modeling team says we're safe at about five. I'm gonna go with what the modeling team uh, tells me is the right number. And I think New Mexico is gonna to tend to be a leader. I think you're gonna see more states go to that five or under as their, uh, their gating criteria specific to education. And here's another uh, aspect. In smaller businesses, when we do a rapid response, so I, I will uh, take a restaurant or a retailer or an auto parts store retailer um, or a, a pharmacy or a dentist's office. You know, you've got 20 employees and in a day you saw 10 people, dentist office, 20. When we do a rapid response, we can test all those folks quickly, immediately, and know where we are. In a school district, we had a bus driver or you had an itinerant uh, substitute or you had a school nurse that went to five schools who may be positive. You've got a huge rapid response and testing nightmare on your hands and contact tracing because now each of those families has to be contact traced. Uh, and what school districts are asking for, and I don't think they're wrong, is that states have to be able to provide surveillance testing. So they get rapid point of contact testing all the time. Well, uh, this country doesn't have access to those kinds of supplies. I'd like to create a better response. I'm hoping to do, we will do surveillance testing, Matt. I'd like to do more point of care. What that means is if you go to the school, you can be tested right there. And in 45 minutes to two hours, I know. Rapid testing means I know in 15 minutes. And um, there's a ton, saliva, blood work, even the nasal pharyngeal, but we don't have all the lab laboratory instruments to do that, nor do we have the commodities, the test tubes, the swabs, um, or the reagents to pull it out. So until I get all of that for schools, it's high risk, which is why we wanted to go to a hybrid model. Fewer kids, fewer faculty, fewer arrangements, go slow with just uh, elementary school. And that's why. And I hope that was a better understanding of why it's so hard to do in-person learning while COVID is um, being rapidly community spread in our state and others. Absolutely. We just have about 30 seconds here. Um, but quickly, do you see anything to indicate that we're likely to get kids back in classrooms before the spring semester? Yes. Um, I, I, our case counts, as you know, for the last three days have been low. Uh, we've uh, dropped by 100 plus. Uh, our contact tracing uh, is rapidly improving. We'll also show you that positivity rates by region are starting to come down. If we hold that for the rest of August, and we will, and we're seeing increased public health responsibility by individuals. Businesses are really requiring their customers to wear masks. They're reminding them as they get out of the car in parking lots, more New Mexicans are wearing masks. Uh, they're doing the social distancing. If families will work really hard um, and it's a huge sacrifice. You have to stay apart from you know, your extended families. I can't have you in groups of 10 or 20 or 30 or 40. Um, I personally saw a group of 30 um, at a uh, park or a um, um, game and fish site and uh, on a drive. 
Uh, I do my own sort of anecdotal surveillance and nobody wearing masks. They were playing music and dancing and it's just too high of a risk. Don't do it. And you're exposing everybody else that you come into contact with. If we can improve our behaviors and hold that, not only do I think we'll meet our school uh, efforts on Labor Day, I think we integrate more students more quickly. And I think you should expect to see that we can ease some of our other restrictions on businesses. So here's my last thing in the 30 seconds. It depends on the Mexicans. The more we do ourselves, the more control we have over the spread. The more control we have over the spread, the less people get sick, the fewer people die. And as I said two weeks ago, even when our numbers come down, it takes two weeks, you'll see more people will lose their lives. It's untenable, right? So we're seeing higher numbers that we lose every day. You should expect that for several more days because you had several more people infected over the last couple of weeks. That just increases that reality. It's awful, but I'm feeling pretty good. And what's going on with our neighbors, the longer they stay shut down, the more opportunities we have for New Mexicans, honestly, because we're truckers come in, New Mexicans go out. Um, we, we are, we are uh, impacted by what's going on in Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Utah, California, Colorado. We just are our direct neighbors and our less direct neighbors. Governor, we appreciate your time. We know you're super busy. You know, Matt, I appreciate you. I know I'm long-winded. This is complicated, but I believe in New Mexico. And you know what? We are doing, frankly, for a small state that's a poor state with real challenges, we're doing a pretty damn good job. And I want to thank my fellow New Mexicans for um, making that a reality and caring for each other. Thank you, New Mexico. A lengthy interview with the governor. Again, we appreciate her time. We got into a lot. There's never enough time to get into all of it and all of our questions. We were fortunate enough. She stuck around for a few minutes with Matt Grubbs. We want to share this web extra with you as well, which you can find on Facebook or YouTube. But here it is in audio form. Matt starts by talking to her this week, especially there was some confusion and some backlash over the elections and campaigning based on some comments the governor made in a press conference last week, and we want to get to the heart of uh, officially whether or not, especially door-to-door campaigning, can be done under any circumstances under her public health order. And then, in addition, Matt talks to her about concerns and plans for the upcoming elections in November. At your news conference last week, Governor, you said, quote, the Democratic Party of New Mexico made it very clear they're not going to engage in anything that would be a violation of the public health order related to campaigning or organizing or fundraising, including reminding candidates that they can't be going door to door. And then you said that is just a terrible idea in a COVID world. Um, What do you mean specifically as it relates to door to door campaigning? Is that allowed? Can that be done? Technically, it's allowed. It just can't be a good, it's not a good COVID safe practice. You know, you got to do both. Uh, You can, you don't know who opens the door. You don't know if they've got a mask. You don't know if they're infected. They may not know that they're infected. Then you take it to the house right across the street. So it it is the worst idea. The, The only prohibition in the public health order, right, is groups of five. 
so indoor, if you're not doing your campaign event in indoor dining, uh, and if you're not uh, doing it in groups of more than five, then you're fine. But uh, I probably could have been a little clearer. You shouldn't do it. So the Democratic Party's really been weighing in heavily to their candidates. Don't go door to door. And actually, Matt, I'll have Trip email it to you. There was a really uh, uh, powerful uh, uh, press uh, story about a uh, democratic political organization that was really pushing their organizers to go door to door. And it did not work out very well. I mean, they had a huge COVID problem. So the prohibition is, if you're having outdoor gatherings and political organizations are, of 20 and 30 and 40 people, that is a violation of the public health order. If you're going door to door, that is a terrible idea. And I uh, beseech you, do not do that. Uh, if you uh, care about your neighbors and fellow New Mexicans, you won't do that. And that does then create public health challenges for us because you'll create COVID spread. Are you concerned about the upcoming election? how that's going to operate um, with an increase in, I see your reaction, go ahead. Well, of course, right? I mean, uh, the, we had trouble with our absentee ballots and I mean, no disrespect to any county clerk or the secretary of state, that turned out to be uh, very challenging. And uh, we had huge absentee voter turnout. We have a little bit different potential here. Uh, that we have to make a decision about pretty quickly, whether we're going to do mail-in or stick to the absentee plus uh, 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 going to our uh, precincts to cast our ballots in person. So having polling places, I guess not precincts, having polling places open. Uh, that's uh, uh, I, anytime you're bringing humans together, I have a COVID risk. And so I am, I'm very concerned. And frankly, again, I hope you don't mind, but look, I've got, I've got a, a, a president uh, in the current White House who's telling people that it's, it's going to be a fraudulent election, that mail-in ballots don't work. I think that that works to do voter suppression. You've got lots of uh, minority communities, not the least of which some of our uh, uh, Pueblo and nation partners who have very strict stay-at-home orders and quarantines, weekend quarantines still in effect. So yes, I am still, I'm concerned that come November, uh, we won't have enough protections in place to do the best possible job, but we do have really incredible tools. Shout out to the Secretary of State who's already been talking to folks about absentee and mail-in ballots. Shout out to the county clerks who are all trying to make sure that that works and a shout out to the poll workers who are being trained for those who will show up in polling sites to be as fully protected as they can. And the Mexicans, please participate by mail, whether that's gonna be absentee or a mail-in ballot system, little too early for us to decide what that's gonna look like, but I'm worried about all of it. And I'm worried about it for the whole country, not just New Mexico. Governor, thanks for your time. Got it. All right, time now to head over to the line opinion panel for this week. We are joined on the show by regulars Dan Foley, former minority whip in the state house, also a former senator, Dee Dee Feldman, great friend of the show, and Giovanna Rossi of Collective Strategies. Um, and we're thrilled to have them with us this week. 
They had the opportunity to watch Matt's interview with Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham that you just listened to. So we want to start out by getting their thoughts on what the governor had to say and to sort of give their insights on how she has handled it so far and maybe where she can adjust course in the future. And so here now is host Gene Grant. Our line opinion panel this week had the chance to watch that interview as they assess where New Mexico is in its COVID response. To get started on the discussion, we welcome former state senator and line regular Dee Dee Feldman, former House representative and line regular Daniel Foley is with us. And it's great to have line guest Giovanna Rossi back with us. She's president of Collective Action Strategies. Good to see you all. Absolutely. Didi, let me start with you. Is it all possible for the governor to bring the state together in its response? Or is she always going to be fighting Republicans? Well, yes. I, I, well, it's probably not possible to bring everybody together. But mm -hmm. I think the polling data does show that the vast majority of New Mexicans are behind her. So um, there's that. But I think that this goes to her comment or her question really during the interview, which was how did public health become so political to the, to the point where there are even local law enforcement uh, sheriffs uh, saying that they will not enforce this law or perhaps any law that she or the legislature would pass, whether it had to do with guns or whether it had to do with, um, with a public health emergency. But I think that from my point of view, this is the basic question um, that um, exists now that did not exist uh, in public health emergencies in the past. For example, when we passed the law that was actually challenged in the Supreme Court this week, this week and was upheld, um, the vote in the New Mexico legislature to pass this, what is now called the FERA or the Public Health Emergency Response Act, it was nearly unanimous. There was only one vote opposing it in the Senate and one vote opposing it in the House. Um, there was a universal recognition in the wake of 9-11 um, and anthrax, which had also happened the previous year, that there, there would be uh, public emergencies when it was warranted to restrict individual liberties. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the issue. To what degree are individual liberties uh, restricted or what, to what degree can they be restricted? And, you know, I think the governor's answer is that in the time of, and the legislature's answer was in the time of, an of a public health emergency that threatens the lives of all New Mexicans, we have to sacrifice some of our individual liberties. Mm -hmm. Giovanna, I'm always curious as I watch the governor's performance, not just in the interview, you know, she had with my colleague, Matt Grubbs, but this entire thing for COVID-19, the fundamental question is how effectively is she communicating her wants and desires here? I th it seems like there's a, a, a two separate groups here, the folks who can hear her and hear her quite you know, detailed and others who cannot hear a word she says literally. Well, how do we assess how effective she's being in this whole situation? 
So I think there's a couple of different questions there about communication. And certainly um, when Matt asked her the question about communication, that was a, sort of a broader question of, you know, giving people <clears throat> direction on Easter Eve about not having church service, like, could that have been different? And, uh, you know, she, she would like to have given more notice, as she said. Um, however, we're in an emergency situation. So when you're in an emergency, you often don't get the notice that you would like, you know? And so I think that really, um, and, and to your question about communication, I don't think somehow the, the idea that, that this is an emergency situation is getting across to some people. And that's in part because it is an emergency that is not super tangible unless you are working on the front lines, unless you have COVID yourself, um, or you know, now it is touching a lot of people with losing jobs and then of course working parents with what to do about school. Uh, but mm -hmm. still, it doesn't seem as though the, uh, the message about this being an actual emergency and, and what has to happen in an emergency situation is that people have to behave differently, right? We have to respond differently uh, when there's an emergency. So I think that piece is, um, is maybe not getting across as much, but I don't think it's because of the way she communicates. I think she communicates pretty directly and pretty well. Um, I think it's- um, not, not, to, not to interrupt, but, well, I am interrupting, sorry. Yeah. But my question is, is that is that really true? If she, if she's not getting through to some people, is she really communicating well? Using that word in quotes. Well, again, I think that it can't come down to one individual's communication, right? She is the okay. governor, and she's she is communicating the the orders and the information. Uh, but to Senator Feldman's point, you know, when did we start questioning? Uh, public health orders as a political issue. And um, when we look at uh, polling and information, we can see that there's overwhelming support for uh, both, both for her, but and her, the way she's handling the situation, but also in a larger look at public health. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think there's, there's complex issues here. And I don't think we can just say, uh, that she's not communicating well, you know. Dan, same question. Is she communicating well with all New Mexicans or just some New Mexicans? And what does she need to do better? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I disagree with Giamana. I think that it's, it's her job to communicate. I mean, all of this stuff, she is, we've given her the power as the governor to take away certain civil liberties, as Dee, Dee pointed out. And I think when you're going to make those decisions, you have to have, you have to clearly articulate it. I think the breakdown is, is, is a multi-process. Uh, one is, I think, you know, when everybody gets on here and says they're shocked at how this has become partisan or political, it's been partisan from day one, whether it was president Trump saying people can't come from China and him being told that he's a racist to now he didn't do enough to do we need masks? Shouldn't we be wearing masks? Everybody has handled this from day one, uh, incorrectly. Uh, as far as communication goes, I think in New Mexico, you have to realize that, um, you know, when you're going out and telling a guy in the oil field who's going to be out there working in 110 degree weather that one, he can't work or two, now he's got to wear a face mask 
and he's got to social distance himself. But, you know, and, 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 and I hear this from many people. They're like, so wait a minute, I can't go to a restaurant, sit down and eat or go to, you know, the liquor store or go insert name here and do what I need to do. But I can go stand in line for three hours at Walmart or Home Depot or mm-hmm. Lowe's. And I think that, you know, in a state- Let, let, me, let me ask a, a question on that. I'm going to stay with you on this. I don't know about you, but my Facebook blew up at the news yesterday that the zoo was reopening next week. A lot of people are having a real hard time with that for the exact reasons you're saying that this, the consistency of how places are opening under what criteria and how they open, there just seems to be an inconsistency that it's frustrating for some people. Well, your sense of that. With Didi and I dealt with in the legislature all the time, right? There is a schism in New Mexico between Republicans and Democrats. There's a bigger schism between urban and rural and when you start telling people in rural New Mexico that they can't go to their tack and feed store, they can't go to the grocery store, they can't go to the local restaurant there, but the people in Albuquerque can go stand in line in, in, in Home Depot for three hours, you are going to have mass chaos on your hands. You are going to find that the people who live in, you know, insert small town here, Cloudcroft, New Mexico, are not going to side with you because they're not going, they're going to say to themselves, so wait a minute. It's just like we're seeing now with the schools, right? I'm hearing a lot of conversation from folks about the schools. Hey, the kids are going to stay home in online school except for two days a week. We're going to take them into schools. So what is it? COVID is only contagious Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's not on Tuesday, Thursday. I think people are feeling like the experts are not giving them common sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. Can I just say? Go ahead, Giovanna say that to correct uh, you, I, I was not saying that the that it's not the governor's job to communicate. Of course, it's her job to communicate. What I was saying was that I think she is communicating. And I think that people are not seeing this as an emergency. And further, uh, you know, as she said in, in the interview, pandemics and emergency situations are not fair. And yes, it is her job to communicate that. You know, and so I feel Mm -hmm. for and I think we have to have a lot of compassion for people out in the rural areas, everywhere, all people, um, people dealing with real situations. Uh, We do have to have a lot of compassion for that. But we also have to communicate that um, that this is not a fair situation and and to. Uh, to blame her as a person for, you know, not allowing someone to go to the liquor store. Like, no, we need to think bigger than that. We're going to have to re- leave that there. And of course, Dan, you know, the governor never said you can't go to the feed and tax store in the liquor store. I hear your point. But I just want to make sure we're all clear there. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break with this group. When we come back, we'll go in depth on the public health order victory. The governor won in court. And the line uh, panel continued the conversation from there this week. Uh, Again, still COVID-19 related. On Tuesday, we once again were privileged to help the New Mexico Supreme Court live stream a hearing related to the public health uh, order that the governor has issued. This specifically had to do with whether or not she had the authority to issue the fines that she has issued to businesses uh, that are operating against the public health order. The ruling came down in her favor, and we encourage you, if you haven't already, you can watch that entire hearing as well as the decision on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Actually, those you can find on the NMPBS Facebook and YouTube pages, but a really interesting conversation. There are still some questions to be answered about 
whether or not some businesses who have already filed suit, if it's acceptable for them to file for um, financial help for the business they have lost because of the public health orders. So there would no doubt be more legal battles in this front, but you can see exactly what the arguments were and the justice's decision and why they made it. Uh, And for now, we're going to head back to the line to get their reactions to that uh, decision in the Supreme Court and what it means going forward in terms of the state's response to COVID-19. In a Monday Supreme Court hearing that many of you watch on our YouTube channel, the state's five justices unanimously agreed that the governor has the right to set some heavy penalties for violations of her public health orders, including fines of $5,000 a day. She's levied on businesses that have defied her orders to close in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, GOP Chair Steve Pierce says the decision by four Democrats and a Republican, that would be Judy Nakamura, shows the importance of electing conservative judges. Dan, I want to start with you on this. Even the conservative judge in the situation said the law here clearly allows the governor to enforce her orders the way she is. Any issue there? Well, the conservative judge, I mean, I don't think Judge Nakamura is a stalwart of conservatism. I don't think anybody would, would turn around and say that she's carrying the banner uh, for conservatism. I think that at the end of the day, you know, there's some real conversations that, uh, you know, the law that was passed limits what she can find is up to $100 per day. Um, and that she's decided to increase those fines uh, arbitrarily, which is different than what the legislation that was passed by the legislature allows her to do. So, you know, I think that the real question is what, what is the bill saying that was passed and what are they doing? And you know, once again, to get me going, that, that's this is the problem with the courts in this state, right? It, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter who's governor, what's going on. I have a law. The legislation was drafted, says you could charge up to this. You can do whatever the law says. That's what the courts uh, should be should be advising them to do. The that's, quest- but that's what they did, though. No? No, Am I mistaken on that? All limits which she can charge in yeah. some of the cases and that she's gone above what what the uh, what the statute said that she could do is the argument from the people that are that are that are that are fighting this in the courts right now. Senator, is that the way you heard it? No, I was the author of that legislation. Um, and um, actually, the legislation, which was um, Senate or House Bill 231 and is now called FERA, um, does allow the governor through her through and the Department of Health through its rulemaking authority to, uh, to levy whatever fines is needed. There, having said that, there are a number of limits on the governor and the state as to what they can do in a time of public, uh, public health emergency, but that is not one of them. Um, and there are a number of them. And she has so far acted within that power. For example, uh, this this uh, act must be renewed every 30 days. It's, it's a temporary grant of extraordinary power to the health department. It's not permanent, uh, but it does, uh, it does give the governor extraordinary powers when it comes to quarantining, uh, fa- even families. Uh, It does give the uh, governor the power to take over health care facilities. 
And this was all passed by the legislature, almost right. unanimously. Uh, only one vote opposed in the Senate, one vote uh, in the House, because there were some, some limits that were attached to the original bill. The original bill that we had back in 2003 was based on a model public health ordinance. Um, and we changed it. It was uh, Representative John Heaton and myself and a number of uh, folks from the Department of uh, Health and the Department of Public Safety. And um, it does give extraordinary powers to the governor and mm -hmm. levying fines is one of them. There is another portion of the law that maybe we'll discuss later, which has to do with takings. Ah. And um, that I think will be the subject of future lawsuits. Interesting. Giovanna, you know, when you think about this, what's the practical application of this decision out of the Supreme Court? Does it really fundamentally have a practical effect out there in the public? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming that it's going to uh, hopefully incentivize um, businesses to comply with the public health order. And I think that's what the governor's attorney was trying to say, was mm -hmm. that we need to be able to uh, implement higher fines in order to um, really make the make the point that this is a serious emergency and you know it's not we don't have time uh, for all of for all of this kind of arguing about it we just need you to not um, or to comply with the public health orders so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that it will. And I, I'm also hopeful that there's some innovative other, you know, creative ideas for helping these businesses because ultimately nobody wants, you know, these businesses to be hurting right now. Uh, it's not like people are sitting around saying, you know, let's think of all the things we can put in a public health order to really, really kill these businesses. That's not the point. Uh, so while we are giving, you know, while the governor is giving out these public health orders, um, I think she also needs to make it clear, what are the innovative, creative other ways that they can pivot and transform their businesses right now? And there are some things out there. There are grants for expanding outdoor patio spaces. Um, in the conversation before we recorded, Senator Feldman had some cool ideas uh, that I'm sure she'll share. Uh, but there are def different, and I think the businesses that are able to uh, be innovative, pivot, and transform are going to be the ones that um, that are going to, you know, do better right now. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Hey, Dan, you know, all things are political, as we were talking about in the, the previous segment. And Republican Chair Stephen Pierce has vowed to make this an issue in November. Uh, and we've got two Democrats who are to be appointed Democrats who are going to be defending their seats. What's going on here on the politics here? Is this really going to be an issue in November, do you think? If Steve Pierce threatens to come after you, I wouldn't be worried about it. So I don't have that much to fear. I mean, the stuff that he made an issue in the campaign and got walloped by the governor, uh, his ability to attack anybody is really... You know, so I, I do think that there's going to be a conversation and an issue in the upcoming elections about this stuff. And I think that those who oppose 
the longer this goes on, the more favorable it's going to be to them. Because the more you go on, the more it's going to affect people, the more the angrier people are going to get. Um, and and I think that you're going to see. But, but how do you how do you make something out of that? Anger is one thing, but how do you how do you flip that? I get everybody to do anything. I mean, if you're not paying attention to politics, we're not debating the stuff politically on its merits. It's all about enticing anger and mm -hmm. fear and getting people out to do something. Generator. I don't know what utopia you live in, but uh, nobody's sending out you know, skittles and rainbows and telling people to vote for them. It's all always about how bad the other person is. That's true. And, and I think Didi, not... let me let me squeeze Didi in here. Same question: Is there a bounce here in November either way for you know Democrats or Republicans on this? The poll data is pretty much in favor of the governor's position right now, but it could mm -hmm. change the longer it goes on. I agree with Dan. People just are restless. And uh, the more they fear, uh, the more they are likely to do anything. We, what we will see is we'll see more lawsuits. We'll see more commentary. We'll see more. Um, I, I think we'll see more candidates making an issue of it, but not really um, being able to strike pay dirt, I think, on it. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to leave that there. We do want to encourage you to head to our Facebook page where the line panelists also discuss a state commission, which is studying a legal doctrine that's designed to protect public employees from crippling lawsuits, but does it do so at the cost of civil rights? We'll talk about it in a line web extra. Correspondent Laura Paskus is back with her ongoing series of conversations with journalists covering COVID-19 in their communities. This week, she talks to Jessica Onsures, She's the editor of the Carlsbad Current in Argus. I'm sorry, the Carlsbad Current Argus. Now, Ms. Onsuris and her reporters are covering the virus in the state, in a part of the state where case prevalence continues to rise amid resistance to the governor's public health orders. Mentioned it earlier, but there's just never enough time to get to everything we want to in the show. And we want to make you aware of a couple other things you can find uh, on our website as well as on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, wherever you get to uh, connect with us here on the show. Uh, first up is a, a discussion on Facebook Live that Gene had this week with a local attorney, Pamela Herndon. She's a friend of the show, has been on a bunch, and she was just named to a very prestigious position with the American Bar Association dealing with civil rights and social justice. And so Gene talks to her about how she ended up there and what the priorities are and really how the legal system is going to play such a huge role in criminal justice reform coming out of the Black Lives Matter protests. But before we head away from the line, I want to let you know we also took the, the opportunity when we had the line panelists gathered via Zoom again this week to take up another issue. That is qualified immunity, which makes it harder, especially with police officers, to file civil lawsuits against them in in police brutality cases and that sort of a thing. It's something that in terms of the criminal justice reform here in the state is being looked at as it is in many other states as well. So right now we're going to send it back in this extra for you on this podcast this week for that discussion with the line panel and Gene. Thanks for joining us for this web extra. We just didn't have time to squeeze this topic into the show this week, but wanted to tackle it here. You won't find it in the Constitution or even in state law, but the term qualified immunity plays a big part in how the public holds its employees accountable. 
It's a legal concept that says individual employees like social workers and police officers can't be sued individually for something that happens in the course of their job. Exceptions to it are rare and hard to prove. And right now, the state is studying whether to eliminate qualified immunity in certain cases, most notably as it relates to police officers, because it might shield law enforcement from civil rights violations. And Giovanna, it's kind of a heady legal concept when you think about it, but it has some real consequences. And some states have done away with it as a, an acceptable defense, certainly. Is New Mexico wise to be rethinking this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, with everything that's been going on and, and the recent uh, you know, attention on uh, police brutality and just problems within the system, that we have to look at it. And um, you know, right now, people think that we don't have a way to hold police accountable. And uh, so that needs to be looked at. It's not an easy solution and it's not a perfect solution. Um, but, you know, we need to do what's right and not what's easy. Mm. And certainly taking a look at this and opening this up for discussion has to be a step in the right direction. I'll be interested to see what the state commission um, that was appointed, the Civil Rights Commission, uh, comes up with because that will also inform, you know, the process. Senator Feld would pick up on that if you would. Uh, Giovanna mentions the commission. They're due to have a report to the legislature in November, I believe, taking a look at this. Is this the proper first step? Yes, it is the proper first step, although other states have just simply banned it. Uh, Colorado has banned uh, qualified immunity. The problem is it's embedded in a lot of contracts between the police union and municipalities. And so it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to change without the um, without a state law. Um, and I think though the uh, discussion in the commission should revol resolve uh, revolve around the idea of can you do it just for police and not for other state uh, office or state employees? Uh, it doesn't seem to me uh, to stand to reason that it should should not just apply to police. Police is where we have the problem now. And that is very clear when you see that um, states and, or, or actually cities are paying $23 million in civil damages as a result of police activities, $5 million here, $13 million there. And the police themselves uh, don't have any skin in the game. Um, so, you know, they could, uh, the commission could conceivably come up with a limited amount that the, uh, that the police officers would be liable for. Um, and I think, um, contrary to uh, some that say this will cost money, I think it might save money uh, for state, for, um, for cities and towns and for the state as well, because they will think twice. Uh, instead of just having the city bail them out and pay them pay the money to the the plaintiffs, that's an interesting point right there. I, I bet you that's going to be a subject of discussion as this moves along. It's very interesting, Dan. Um, I want to bring this to you. Uh, something Didi just sort of uh, brushed by. Uh, Representative Bill Ream made this point that look, this could be impactful on who wants to be a police officer if you don't have these protections. Would you agree with? Bill Ream on this? 
Um, I mean, I, I doubt many guys that are joining the police force ask about qualified immunity when they're putting in their application. I, I think the conversation, though, about qualified immunity needs to go back. I mean, to me, just as another example of where the courts have gone awry, right? I mean, this first came about in 1967 um, in Pearson versus Ray, and it was in the height of the civil rights moment when qualified immunity first brought itself to the forefront. And that was it basically laid down the, the foundation that said, look, you can't sue somebody for doing something that was right outside of their job. Right. So so they gave them the qualified immunity. Like if you if something happened in the excess of them doing what they thought was correct, fair and, and there's a standard that was put in place, you know, that has a reasonable man standard, reasonable person standard. And we've sensed as is an example with lots of things in this country, once the courts get a hold of it and start interpreting it and making their own decisions and adding things to it, um, it loses its luster is the meaning behind it so you know does there need to be qualified immunity to some extent there needs to be protections for uh state to realize that if they're acting in good faith doing what they know is right now remember mm -hmm. when you go out there and decide you're going to commit a racial crime like i get up today as a police officer and decide i'm going to mess with people of color you are not going to qualify for you should not qualify for qualified immunity even under the standard of which it was established in 1967 um, but what we're trying, if we do away with it, you know, now you're looking at making a tough situation for social workers that go in and make that bad decision, not the police that make a bad decision, not, not an illegal decision, but you know, someone that says, Hey, listen, I went to the house. I'm a social worker. Everything looked fine in the house. The kids said everything was fine in the house. My decision was to leave the children in the house. And then something bad happens that night. There has to be some level of protection uh, for these workers, but I think the problem is ex is exacerbated by once again the courts taking a decision that's that that was passed to do the right thing and deciding that they're going to manipulate it and do what they need to do with it and get us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Hey, Giovanna, Mike Gallagher had a terrific piece in the Journal about this uh, over the weekend, and he snagged a really good quote from Senator uh, Jerry Ortiz Pino, who is worried that. The Civil Rights Commission's recommendations about losing their urgency by the time we get to the next legislative session. Is there a way to keep this hot, keep it cooking until that time? Well, you know, hopefully it won't take more brutal killings to keep it a hot topic. Um, mm -hmm. I think that he has a point, you know, we want to make sure that it's still something that uh, people want to tackle come in the legislative session. You know, one thing I thought about when I read that um, about the commission was, you know, they're going to meet, they're not even named yet. And then they're going to meet, they're, they're going to give us a report in November. I wish it was sooner and uh, mm -hmm. faster and quicker and, and maybe more updates rather than just waiting for a report in November. Um, so that, I think that could have been a little better, um, but certainly with the, um, the gravity of the situation and with uh, how, um, how much attention is on this right now, I, I think it's incumbent upon the legislators themselves to keep it top of mind and not be uh, you know, not say, well, we're, you know, this is just not a priority anymore. Right. Um, so I, I think they need to be held accountable to keep it top of mind. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Didi, if you want to add no, in on that. I, I totally agree with that. 
And uh, this is not something that's going to just blow over, uh, which is, I think, what some of the opponents of this increased accountability measure are hoping. Um, but I do think that um, the commission has a role to really educate, and the state and the local governments also have a role to educate their employees on what are the civil rights of the people that are their clients, their constituents. I have a, I have a feeling that a lot of uh, employees outside of the police department are not well schooled in this and don't know when they're violating someone's civil rights um, because they've never faced the possibility that they will be held to account for it. So, you know, at the very least, this should be done. But I agree. I think the legislature needs to act one way or another. And I fear that the commission will just, you know, come up with um, not much of a recommendation on this. Mm -hmm. We're going to wrap that up there. We'll be watching this closely, certainly. Thanks to our panelists. And let us know what's on your mind by leaving a comment here on Facebook and maybe even joining our Focus on New Mexico Facebook group, which we're always hashing out other news of the day. Next up this week, we're going to stay on the COVID-19 beat. We've talked about it, hinted about it. We've been doing it for several weeks now, but there is sort of an increasing amount of resistance and defiance to the governor's public health orders. And nowhere is that maybe more prevalent than in southeastern New Mexico, which also happens to have some of the biggest increases in cases in recent weeks. Uh, and so we wanted to check in as we have throughout the uh, pandemic with journalists working to cover this story in various communities across the state. This week, it is Jessica Ansuras. She is the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. She also heads up uh, many of the other newspapers in the area, Alamogordo included, for the Gannett Newspaper Group. And we wanted to find out from her again why so much resistance to the public health orders there, most notably Lee County, where the sheriff's office has refused to enforce the public health order even gone so far as to take pictures eating inside restaurants, which is a violation of the public health order. And uh, you're going to hear a really interesting perspective here from Jessica about how part of this plays into the separation of northern New Mexico versus southern New Mexico and many communities in Jessica's uh, readership area just not feeling like their voice is heard, wanting a seat at the table in the discussions about the COVID-19 response and the public health orders and just feeling like they're not getting that opportunity and their considerations aren't being considered. So Laura Paskus, our great correspondent, once again is checking in with reporters and here's her conversation with Jessica Ansuras of the Carlsbad Current Argus. Jessica, modeling shows that except for in Cibola County where there's the prison outbreak, Southeastern New Mexico is the only part of the state where the prevalence of cases is still going up. What's going on there? How is the virus being spread in that part of the state? You know, that is a really great question. And it's one of the things that we go to a number of different sources to try to figure out. We look at what's happening within our community and we know that there has been a, um, a a disregard for some of the requirements, social distancing, mask wearing that have been put in place by the governor this particular part of the state. And we also know that um, 
culturally as well in southeastern Mexico, um, we are prone to large gatherings, we're prone to large families, we're prone to interaction. And so the spread of the virus is actually something that um, is pretty in line with that. Now we did expect, though we had been um, pretty low in numbers at the beginning of all of this um, since March, we did expect that there would be a time when those numbers of cases did increase. So um, it's not unexpected. Um, I think that we are all pretty concerned with the rate at which it's been happening. Um, since those numbers went up. Um, Eddy County, for example, stands at just a little over 200 cases at the moment. And all of that has happened since um, the middle of July. So we're relatively um, quick when it comes to the, the spread of um, coronavirus in our communities. So let's talk about Lee County and the Lee County Sheriff's Office. Lee County is one of the three counties in southeastern New Mexico that's seeing the highest number of cases, and the Lee County Sheriff's Office has been um, not really happy about the public health order. Can you talk about that and what's happening with that lawsuit? Well, I think it's important to also note that it's not just Lee County who's been um, unhappy with some of the requirements put into place. Uh, that's pretty much the prevailing attitude in this part of the state. For Lee County particularly, um, the, the controversy there is that the local law enforcement at all levels, that be county and um, city of Hobbs and its um, minor municipalities have decided that, um, well, that the orders are unconstitutional first off and that they are impossible to enforce. Um, Lee County Sheriff's deputies have gone so far as to sit inside an indoor dining restaurant and have lunch um, in defiance of the governor's orders to close indoor dining. Now that particular lawsuit, um, is interesting because it really is the, in my opinion, the next step into what can we do to make sure that um, as those numbers are increasing within Lee County itself, that um, everything is being done um, to prevent the, the continual spread. Um, holding somebody accountable is extremely important for um, the changes that are happening when it comes to the numbers and the type of spread within that community. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mentioned as like a resistance in that part of the state to some of the aspects of this order. Like what is that about and kind of why does that manifest itself in southeastern New Mexico? I think it's the next step in what has been a long-standing dispute between southern New Mexico and northern New Mexico. The feeling is that we're not heard when it comes to matters of importance in the northern part of the state where a majority of the governance is, um, is done. Uh, Southern New Mexico's reaction to the mandates, the health safety orders that have been put in place have been pretty strong. Um, the overall, I mean, those first steps were, we're not going to enforce it. It's unenforceable. It doesn't make sense for our businesses here. It doesn't make sense for communities that have been lightly, at the very beginning, lightly impacted by this disease, by this um, pandemic. Um, so that was the prevailing attitude then, and we are starting to see a stronger shift towards, uh, can we have a seat at the table? Can we talk about how to do all of these safety things that you're talking about, but in a, in a way that makes sense for our communities in Southeast New Mexico? And we're not seeing, I think the communities here aren't seeing a response to that request. And so um, they're, they're taking it to the next level, which is if we don't get that seat at the table, then we're 
going to just go ahead and openly defy these because it doesn't, um, as I said before, doesn't make sense for our economies, for our communities. So a lot of these measures, whether it's wearing masks or limiting public um, gatherings, are really focused on stopping the spread. And, you know, if you're positive, um, whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic, and preventing the spread to other people within your community. And so I'm curious what, if people don't want to be wearing masks or they want to be dining indoors or they don't want to be complying with these orders, what are some other solutions people are suggesting for stopping and slowing the spread of the virus? That's an interesting question. Um, let me take a, a step back and, and just address a portion of that, which is it's not necessarily that these won't these measures won't stop the spread of the virus. It's that these measures can be done safely um, while reopening those aspects of our economies, restaurants specifically in this case, um, while allowing people to go into our small businesses, into our small main street shops. Um, those owners, those business um, owners, those entrepreneurs are smart enough to know uh, what is a safe environment within their own business. Um, so back to the to that major part of that question is what else can be done? I think beyond social distancing and mask wearing and just being really what we call COVID safe, right? Washing your hands, using sanitizer. Um, the larger argument is if you know that you are at risk, if you're among those risk categories, if you know that you are a person who has um, a health issue that you that might put you at a, a greater risk of contracting the disease at a, you know, with symptoms that are above and beyond a normal contraction. Um, or if you're in a household or sharing a space with somebody like that, um, those are the people who should be empowered themselves individually to uh, make the choice to either go out or stay home, wear a mask or not wear a mask. So as you're grappling with all sorts of different issues, I'm curious as editor, how what your strategy is for covering COVID in addition to everything else that you have to cover on a day-to-day -day basis. Right, uh, so COVID has taken over everybody's lives recently and we hear that um, pretty, pretty well across the board at all of our Southeastern New Mexico properties. Um, that includes, you know, the, the, newspaper, the newspapers over at Hobbs, the newspapers in Alamogordo and Rio Doso. The strategy has been to keep it at a local level. We really want to capture the stories of those who are every day in the trenches. Um, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's it's true. Um, one of my um, one of my favorite types of stories to read are those local business stories where we talk to the business owners, um, we talk to the entrepreneurs, we talk to the local government leaders. Um, what are they doing? How are they dealing? What are some of the challenges they face? Uh, largely as well, because we are such a focus point in the state when it comes to uh, openly questioning the restrictions and the requirements put into place, um, it's especially important to capture that local voice because we want to be able to represent the reasoning and um, the beliefs behind that viewpoint to the rest of the state. Well, thank you, Jessica, to you and your staff for capturing those local voices and for joining us today. Be safe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that is our show for this week, but we'll leave you tonight with some final thoughts from our host, Gene Grant, as always. This week, his mind, as most people's are, is really on the return to school next week. 
and how we try to do the best we can to make sure our kids get the educational opportunities they need and deserve, but also stay safe in this pandemic. We know it's got a lot of people very concerned, parents, educators, students, you name it. We've seen in Georgia and other states that have tried to reopen and have already dealt with some outbreaks and some serious situations. There's no easy solutions here, and we'll continue to cover that in future weeks as well. But we'll leave you with his thoughts. Thanks, as always, for listening and staying engaged and informed and involved. And reminder, let us know what you think, what we should be covering on the show. There's so many outlets for you to do that. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. We'd love to get that feedback from you. So we'll be looking for that from you this week and have a bunch more for you next week. This is executive producer Kevin McDonald for New Mexico In Focus. So this week, teachers went back into the classroom. So much to consider here. Now, while they get their rooms ready for our children to come to school after Labor Day, you have to wonder what they're feeling. Have we done the best we can by our teachers? Have we truly done everything possible to ensure their safety? While any number of businesses stay closed, we have no problem demanding teachers go back to school while we still don't definitively know why and how the virus spreads via children. We talk endlessly in our country and right here in New Mexico on the importance of teachers, but given what we have gone through this spring and summer, I'm not so sure if our actions have matched our words. Let's have their backs over these next few weeks, huh? This is the moment. If we can't find some respect for teachers in these times, we likely never will. <laughs>